listening to the Advancing Women in Sport podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Michelle Redfern. I'm so thrilled to bring you season two, and I've called it The Boys Club, stories of people who are smashing the patriarchy in sport. In season two, I'm lifting my eyes and lifting my focus to the whole system of sport. I know from the work that I do with clients in both the business and sport areas, it's important to fix systems and remove barriers that prevent women from all walks of life, from all ages and stages in all sports on and off the field. I know it's important to remove barriers for those women to be successful. So my guests on season two are diverse. They are people of different genders. They're in different geographies and of course, different parts of the sporting sector. What season two guests all have in common is that they are agitating, advocating and activating for gender equality in sport. I hope you enjoy the episode. The Advancing Women in Sport podcast is created on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respects to Elders past and present. I also celebrate the massive contribution that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island peoples have made to sport, and I acknowledge their contribution across the world. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of the Advancing Women in Sport podcast. Today, I'm, I'm thrilled to have a bloke with me because some of you will recall from the first episode of, of season two or my preamble that uh, I'm looking for great guys around the world who are trying to level playing field for women and girls in sport. Dr. Ryan Storr is most definitely doing that. And well, I'm, I'm going to ask Ryan to, to tell us in his words what it is he does and what, and what he brings and why. But for me, what is really heartwarming and gratifying today is to have a conversation with someone who is a member of of the rainbow community like me and someone who is so clearly focused on all women being able to participate in sport at all levels so i'm a bit i'm a bit thrilled to have you here ryan so hey Let's let's imagine that we've wandered because we're both in Melbourne at the moment, and let's imagine we wandered into some fabulous event, and someone walks up to you and says, "Hi, who are you, and what do you do?" So, what do you say? <laughs> well, where to start? So, it's changed over the years. Once upon a time, I was a full time academic. Now, I'm kind of a part time academic, pracademic, some might say, and I. Um, an advocate for diverse inclusion in sport, but most people will probably know me and probably see me in a media outlet in the last couple of weeks speaking about trans inclusion and trans women in sport. So I co-founded Proud to Play, which is an LGBT sport a charity here in Melbourne. So we're the peak organisation for LGBT sport in Victoria. My kind of usual day job is a researcher. So I look at diverse inclusion in sport, but more specifically around LGBT um, inclusion in sport with a specific focus on diversity work in the sense of I don't do as much research into like specifically around homophobia and stuff like that. I've got colleagues who do that, Eric Dennison and some colleagues in the UK, etc. I'm really interested, I guess, in what can be done to change. So um, in my PhD, is a diversity framework around diversity work. And it specifically looks at what needs to happen or what can we do to actually make changes? Because we can keep reporting stats about how bad things are, but how do we actually change it? And how do we actually get LGBT people into sport? Because for me, it's really important that it's not just players. I used to be a, a tennis coach um, having my qualification. We need to think about it's not just all right to have a few people playing. We need managers we need coaches we need volunteers we need physios like it needs to be all levels of sport um so that's why i'm passionate about and that's what I spend most of my time doing. And I, so there's a, it's interesting you said pracademic because uh, as we record this episode, it's, uh, we're in the, uh, the twilight zone that is known as a federal election campaign, which has had a whole bunch of dog whistling to bigots um, around transphobia going on. But in this very week, the final interview in my, in season one of, of the podcast was released with Dr. Hannah McDougall, who also calls herself a pracademic. And, and I want to, you know, shout out and kind of demonstrate to people what a difference that makes. A pracademic and particularly what you said, Ryan, about creating not a body of research to report on the past, but but research and evidence-backed solutions to say, this is what you need to do. And that's such an important part of how we make change is, is giving people the tools and the techniques and the, I guess, the to-do list on what to do, but to feel confident that it's backed up by research and evidence. So thank you, Professor Pracademic, as I'm now going to call you from now on. 
it's uh, that, that that makes a difference. So let's let's go way back, and and I ask my guests this question in a range of different ways. But essentially, I look at those of us who are in the advocacy space. And I think, you know, there are some stages that all of us have gone through that. And the first stage is oblivion. You know, nothing, we don't know what's going on. And and I think all of us at some point in our lives were oblivious to the exclusion that certain members of the community, women, girls, trans women, uh, members of the LGBT uh, community have gone through. But then we become aware. Some of us become outraged and some of us then move into advocacy. But I suppose for you, what was the awareness point for you, which then tipped into the, well, to what you do now? So when did you, was there something that made you aware, ooh, there's something going on here that I need to pay attention to and do something about? Or was it a bunch of things? So firstly, apologies. The leaf blower has just come by. So he'll probably be there for about five minutes. So I was trying to find a spot. So if it needs to edit that bit out, but I think they come the same time every week. Uh, so apologies what, though, about that. What, what, what this last two years of, of a global pandemic has taught us is that there are leaf blowers, there are doorbells ringing, there are dogs barking, there are kids, there are, you know, this is, I love it because it's very real. And, you know, we've moved away from very clinical, everything must be precise. So leaf blowers rule. No, they don't, but they're a pain, but I get it. <laughs> Look, there was a few things that stood out, but there was one thing in particular, and that's what helped and made me start um, Proud to Play in particular. So when I was doing my PhD, I was looking at diversity inclusion in sport, um, community sport, specifically looking at how community sport volunteers engage with diversity. So what does it mean to them on a day-to-day basis? Um, they're often given policies and told to be diverse, but what does that actually mean on a day-to-day basis for them? And when I was doing my data collection for my own PhD and it was part of a larger ARC project. Um, so it's Australian Research Council funded project. One of the things I noticed was that, so I'll give you an example, AFL, uh, our community, Australian rules football, used to have tribunal meetings. So on a Monday night, if there was any racism, discrimination, vilification, fighting and things like that, apparently every Monday night, the tribunals were full of incidents and things like that, especially related to vilification and discrimination. And when I was getting a lot of feedback and speaking to people, one thing they said was the homophobia never gets addressed. Like everyone just turns a blind eye to it. No one wants to speak about it. Or the young people, they're too young to be gay, so they don't know about it, blah, blah, blah. I found that for about six months and I'm thinking, why is nobody talking about this when it's clearly evident and everybody's talking about it and you can hear the homophobia and the kids using it, but nothing's getting done compared to other areas. So I did some digging and there was no real organization. Nothing was already being done. So I thought, I can't stand by, kind of just see nothing happen. I guess I've always been a, a bit of a, a leader, activist, kind of, if I see things that aren't right, I'll say something. Um, and then, yeah, as I was finishing my PhD, so I'm proud to play with James, the other co-founder, and the, 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 rest, of, the rest is history, really. Mm. Why didn't and and why doesn't oh okay let me wind back a little bit why does homophobia rank so low on the we must do something about it scale so if we think about well gender discrimination racism and, and vilification you know disab- slurs about disability or, or what why in your opinion why does it rank so low therefore doesn't get dealt with and I'll ask you about why what enables people to deal with it next but why does it rank so low so this is what led me to do research in this area as well which I'm really interested in I've written papers on personal opinion I think it's because of the legacy of homophobic laws and attitudes probably from the 80s and 90s um, especially around HIV and AIDS towards gay men in particular in the adverts and the media headlines um, in Australia there was um, like adverts and stuff and it wasn't actually illegal in some states, I think Tasmania was the last one to decriminalise it. And I think that left a long-lasting legacy of discrimination and just ingrained culturally acceptable attitudes to not like LGBT people, especially gay men in particular. Um, and the research that I've done kind of locking into that is that there's a few reasons. One of them, I'll give you an example of some clear things that we found. When I did a large project scope and study for Australian cricket. We asked people from a large survey to rank what part of diversity inclusion they thought cricket did well. 
Women and Girls was number one. Um, obviously, very successful women's team and um, programs, Indigenous, disability, and last was LGBT. So even a large sample of people identify that LGBT inclusion does not get done. It's the least well done within cricket in particular. And I think most of the people are to, like there was one of the studies I did was called the poor cousin of inclusion. It's a neglected area. And there's a, re- a whole reason of why people say, so for example, not in our strategic plan, no appetite for it, gays don't play sport, like there's hundreds of reasons. But one of them I think is um, ingrained and in institutionalized homophobia within sport um, and the sports sector. If we think about most of the um, administrators and leadership and things like that, men who are more likely to hold attitudes which rather indifferent or probably prejudiced towards LGBT people in particular. And I can tell you from interviewing many senior leaders, there is definitely over homophobia. And especially, we even see it around women. The Matildas is a clear example, lesbian mafia, grooming, all those type of things. You just think, wow, how on earth can you get away with saying all that type of stuff? There's no evidence for it. Same with the trans women stuff that's going on. There's no evidence for it. So I think a large reason is, unfortunately, um, they don't, for whatever reason, see LGBT inclusion as contributing to their business goals um, and they don't see a market for it and they actually think it's bad for business. So, for example, one of the predominant things I hear, especially within women's sport, mums don't want to send their daughters down to play cricket or rugby or AFL because they'll turn into a lesbian. Now, I'm not sure if people know how sexuality works and whether straight people or gay people can suddenly become heterosexual. Um, I'm sure many people have tried to do it. I still have never met, I've still never seen a cricket bat by playing with it and touching it that turns you into a lesbian. I feel like it would be worth a lot of money. So the actual reality of it is ridiculous, really, when we when we actually think about the facts around it. Well, it's bollocks. It's bollocks in it big with a cap with a capital B. So, as you were speaking, Rowan, I, I was considering the the very very good book Fair Game by Alex Blackwell, who who's who specifically called out that homophobia and the the system level homophobia and how she was silenced uh, from presenting her full identity uh, in the context of well, arguably she never made captain of of the Australian team because of her sexuality. Now, and I say arguably because I think that could be a long debate, but we certainly know she was given messaging around dial it down. Dial down uh, the fact that you're a gay woman because we don't want mums to be put off sending their girls to play cricket. And, um, you know, so I think there's this, you're absolutely right, there are a whole lot of long-held attitudes. And a lot of, um, you know, I am... In, in my 50s, so I, I remember the 70s, but I certainly remember the 80s very well and those Grim Reaper ads around HIV and the shame. Now, I wasn't out then because magically I was a thought I was a heterosexual back then and I became a gay person. So maybe I touched that cricket bat, I don't know. But, um, you know, let, let, but this is not my story, it's yours. So, you know, but I remember that and, and, I, I, and there are so many people who carry shame and guilt from that and then I think in equivalent terms and to the point that I'm (laughs) desperately trying to make is a lot of people still carry views uh, from that from those campaigns and and that that uh you know just outright homophobia that are in very, very senior, powerful positions of influence, both at grassroots and community sport, right through to elite. And when we look at the composition of leaders in sport, which my data, your data, there's there's more data than you can poke a stick at, we know that the person who is most likely to be in charge and make decisions about sport is white, male and cisgendered. So for those who don't understand what cisgendered is, it means they identify with the gender that was assigned to them at birth. So white, male and straight. So that very narrow definition of a a human, and I'm not suggesting those people are narrow definitions of humans individually, but that very narrow um, cross-section of society is making a lot of decisions and may well be holding on to that that bigotry, uh, which is left over from legacy campaigns. So that's the why, um, why, you you know, you do what you do. And I, I want to 
delve straight into where we are right now. So, and we were talking before we, we started to record about the work in diversity, equity, inclusion does feel like two steps forward, 10 steps back. Um, many times it can be soul destroying and heartbreaking as well as joyful and fulfilling. And right now there's a, well, there would be those that like, would like it to, to believe that this is a national conversation, but there's a conversation going on about women in sport. And there is a group that are trying to protect women in sport. Now, I'm, I'm going protect with, with the air quotes here, listeners, because, uh, you know, I'm not subscribing to this point of view, but there are folks who are saying that biological women, so those of us who are born and assigned the gender of female at birth, are the only women that should be allowed to play women's sport. Now, I've got, I've got a couple of things that I want to ask you to talk about here. Number one, um, we know that the participation levels of the LGBT community in sport are very low compared to um, non-LGBT people. We also know that the participation of trans people in sport is even lower. The question I've got for you or, or your insights that I'd like to glean from you is – how might we address the participation levels? Because we know sport's so good for everyone. Um, how might we address those participation levels? And that's, you know, and I'm, I'm kind of want to get you back in your, your wheelhouse of proud to play uh, at an individual level. So how do we help people who identify as LGBT to participate more in sport? But how do we help those who hold the power in the system to allow that. And I'm using the word allow really deliberately because they actually have to allow it. How do we allow that to happen? It's a difficult question because it's very complex. Um, One of the key things I think to stress to around sport in particular is this notion of a lot of sports administrators and people in clubs, etc. will say, we welcome everybody. Our doors are always open. Um, We don't discriminate. The problem with that is, is that there's an understanding of thinking that everybody is cisgender and heterosexual. So it doesn't work for us. So you might have the best intention that everyone's welcome, but it's not going to work. People aren't going to come. So when we, when we say everybody, right, what we're saying is everybody but, everybody except these people. Now, I'm not. I'm not saying people say that more. There actually are some people who will overtly say it. So we've got a picture. We've got an avatar in our mind of who everybody is, and they're cisgendered and predominantly straight. And it's just there's a blissful ignorance that people coming through the doors can be LGBT, and especially around young people. So 80% of sport participation is under 18. Right, large percentage. And we often hear, oh, we don't have any gay people, we don't know. You don't know. Like, in terms of when young people actually affirm their sexuality in particular, it can be anywhere from about 13, 14, 15, 16, that kind of adolescent phase, right? So regardless if they're out, if they're in an environment where homophobia is common, etc., they might internalise that homophobia. They'll spend the best part of five or six years thinking that homophobia uh, is, is normal and that being gay is bad. And that's why even people like myself, we grow up with shame um, around being gay because these sporting environments absolutely amplify that. And then we end up spending years in the therapist's office trying to unpack it and all these years of living and being brought up in a very heteronormative society around expectations about, about how men and women in particular should behave. And sometimes you're thinking, well, that doesn't really, it's not for me, or I don't see myself like that. And then it's hard to process, especially if you're a young person. So I think the most work and the most damage that sport does is towards young people. And I actually did a project with LGBT young people. I'm not going to lie, it was horrendous. They were telling me stories about being pinned down in the changing rooms in sport, being bullied, being bullied by teachers. Teachers have caused a lot of angst over the years. Um, And it forces LGBT people to disengage and not want to do sport. Um, I remember like the certain things that stand out to me over the years. Went up to Sydney University. They did a pride round a couple of years ago. One of their players came out. He was a good part of the club. He had a partner who used to come down. They really embraced it. 
and I went down, did a bit of a speech. Um, I had the trophy and stuff because it was a, I think it was a specific match. And I spoke to, I was speaking to a gay guy beforehand. Said, and I was just on the side of the oval. Said, "Oh, are you playing today?" And he looked at me and laughed. I said, "Oh my god, no, <laughs> I'm gay. I can't do sport." And it's that mentality and culture that gays don't do sport or he could never see himself playing the team sport because we're told we're not welcome. And until we kind of, those attitudes start to change, um, we've got a long road ahead. And so flipping that into, because uh, I, 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 I'm hesitant here because I don't want to be sound like a crass capitalist, but I, I always think it's follow the money, right? Um, so we want sport to be sustainable and we want sporting clubs and associations to flourish. And, the, you know, you, it's interesting when you said uh, you talked about volunteers beforehand because we know that sport is built on the backbone of volunteerism. Um, we, we've got we've got literally millions of people volunteering in sport uh, every week here in, in in Australia alone. So I think what do we we want more people to turn up? We want more people to show up in sport, and what we want as sporting organisations is to frankly grab a share of their wallet or a share of their eyeballs, which then leads to helping other people grab shares of our wallets. Why Why would we not understand that there's a commercial imperative for sport to be inclusive of more humans, irrespective of, of how they, they identify? Now, I know that's such a naive question, but I'm, I'm being deliberately obtuse because we are talking about long-held beliefs here about, you know, particularly around trans women, they don't belong in sport. They do. They, we must for the good of our country and our people because look at our health outcomes when we have higher participation in sport. We've got to get them into sport for a better society. But we also have to think about it from a commercial lens. So what, I wonder why that hasn't been considered, Ryan. Is it purely bigotry and long-held beliefs or is it, am I missing something? No, it's a, it's a very good point again. <laughs> all these questions are, I keep saying that. Um, so I speak about this all the time. Um, I use theoretical frameworks around diversity management um, and looking at the business benefits of LGBT inclusion specifically. 10 to 15% of the population, high disposable income generally, higher educational um, backgrounds, not to say everything, but generally across the board. So... To answer the question simply, poor business management skills and leadership in the sense of why would you not want to engage and take money from 10 to 15% of the population who would then be posting on social media, would be spending money behind the bar, would be buying merchandise? Like it's, it's obviously we don't need to go through all that. So if you can't see that, then that is bad business sense. And the amount of conversations I've had when I've explained that, and I've actually, you can see the look on their eyes. They're like, oh God, I've never thought about that. Um, because interestingly enough as well, out of all the demographic groups, apart from women and girls, LGBTI is the largest, more than Indigenous, more than um, disability and things like that, um, and certain cultural groups. So considering it's the largest pocket of diversity, you'd think it would be low-hanging fruit to do it. Unfortunately, though, I think the reason is, is because they see engaging in LGBT inclusion and with LGBT communities as detrimental to their core business and their fan base, which is the straight white male. And I've had many conversations with this, especially in cricket and AFL, where they think if we do pride rounds or we start trying to get the gays along, then our main core fan base will be disenfranchised and won't go. So we're at a loss. Now, I, 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 sorry to interrupt, but you know that is really disrespectful to the man, main fan base because you're assuming that they're a bunch of knuckle dragging Neanderthals who haven't got a clue, and that I find that really disrespectful. So again, I agree, it's bad business management, not even understanding your fan base. It's only a few, and there's look, there has been studies where they've actually wanted to look into what actually fans' attitudes and perspectives were and things like that. And most of the time they come back in favour of inclusion and support and 
things like that. So I think it's assumptions around it. And unfortunately, as we've seen with the trans women debate, you just need, you could have a a hundred fans, I sound like Lady Gaga, you could have a hundred fans and two of them cause a racket and email and say, you did that pride game. I'm going to rip my membership up, which often membership officers get. And that's enough to scare them and drive policy and practices around whatever they engage with. Whereas they could have 98 people who actually really like what they're doing, but they don't hear about it. And they listen to the two people happened with swimming in Australia, swimming in um, America with the Leah Thomas stuff, resistance and pushback. So they changed their policy to exclude her based on resistance and backlash from a very small minority in um, the, the American swim sector and society, not based on evidence. It's literally policies driven by fear and ignorance. Um, and I think we get that around here with LGBT inclusion because the corporate sector, there's a lot of benefits and we're seeing it around when organizations engage with LGBT inclusion, good things happen. I've done lit reviews. I've read all sorts. Never have I seen anything reported that says when an organization or business actively engages in LGBT inclusion, that they're worse off from it and their organization and the bottom line decreased. There's no evidence for it. It's it's fascinating and it's it's a great segue into talking about leadership under duress because you've talked about swimming, uh, US swimming and how when that leadership came under duress or under pressure from a minority group. Now it's interesting, I wonder I wonder how powerful that minority group was. Clearly actually very influential. But so for you, um what does leadership under duress look like and feel like? But also, how do you advise your stakeholders and clients and what have you about dealing with backlash? Because we know that, you know, humans are hardwired, biologically hardwired to resist change because it's dangerous. Yada, yada, yada. You're better at that than I am. But how do you, how do you deal with it? And then how do you advise others to deal with the inevitable, whether it's a gentle pushback? I need more information. Help me run or, out of my face, dude, I'm not I'm not signing up for your gay agenda. How do we deal with leadership? How do we deal as leaders when we've got that kind of duress thrown at us? It's definitely a skill. And I'd probably say that's probably why I've been successful in year, in recent years because kind of worked out how to do it. I can approach one organization or person, it could go down really well, could go down a lead balloon, another, and it's working and being emotionally sensitive to the climate and what might get them over the line. Some people might say, look, I just need a business case. Give me a business case. Tell me why I should be doing this. Others are a bit more kind of understanding. I think in general, um, interestingly enough, all the people who I've worked with around doing this work and bringing about change has always been with women's pot leaders, which reflects the evidence that we know of that women generally have more supportive attitudes towards LGBT inclusion in particular and diversity broadly. Um, there's been a few male allies who've got it and have, and have helped and done some great work. Um, Craig Tiley in particular, whenever we ask him to do events, support, do stuff at the Glam Slam, always supportive of it um, and understands the, the reasons why. Others that are more challenging, I think, one thing that stands out for me from I've interviewed hundreds of administrators over the years for various projects uh, is a general lack of knowledge and insight into what it's like to be an LGBT person. Um, normally, because the idea of contact theory, they've never met um, a LGBT person. Um, they might have worked with somebody, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they might have worked with someone, but they might not have known about it, for example, because most a lot of LGBT people are actually out in the in the workplace. Um, and there's just this complete uh, being oblivious to the issues around. Yep. And it, uh, even sometimes, I, like obviously I do this day to day, but I do often have to check myself in terms of, I may be giving presentations on giving an example somewhere 
And someone will come up to me and be like, do you know what? When you said that, I had no idea, never would have thought about it. And it's very common. So I kind of always now try and really elaborate on the the things. And that's why for anybody who hasn't yet watched it, one thing I would definitely suggest, because I think it's wonderful, is there's a new Netflix show called Heartstopper, which... <laughs> It's it's fantastic, but the main thing about it, it does a good job, is it gives it follows LGBT young people and some queer stories, but two young men in particular, two young boys, about how they navigate and fall in love. But it just does an excellent job in giving an insight into what it's like for a young gay man who has to navigate the rugby team being bullied, his mum asking him when he's going to get a girlfriend. There's all these things that, I think a lot of heterosexual people don't understand and that's why it's really important to have um, shows like that, podcasts, so you can actually hear stories and get an insight into what it's like. Because if you, if you don't know an LGBT person, I can imagine it's quite, you, you, would, you wouldn't know. But I think in order for us to progress as a society, especially within the sports sector, we have to share the stories and we have to let people know um, because people, a, a lot of people and close friends of mine still, like think, oh, it's 2022, like surely it's all good. And you kind of like, well, yeah, but there's that general understanding. So that's why it's important and um, key to keep doing research around this in terms of actually these are the issues that are affecting LGBT people um, and <laughs> I say LGBT people as well because a lot. It's really difficult. We've got gay men are different. There's so many diversity. You got women, lesbian women, trans people, non-binary. It's a very large group to throw into one category. And I find so. There's a couple of points I want to pull out of of what you've just said, which are are bang on. And and the first call, well, might be the second call to action, but the the first call to action is do not underrate empathy as a business leadership skill in sport and in business that empathy you know it is the stuff that sets um good leaders a bigger pardon great leaders apart from good leaders and of course not so good leaders being able to walk a mile in another person's shoes which is why i have a i have a a virtual diversity walk called walk a mile i it's for free and i'll put it in the show notes but have a walk have a walk in someone else's shoes even for a day and try and understand so the storytelling and i agree the storytelling the you know the shows the conversations the the blogs combined with that research um is really important ryan i have the same experience as you i think god i think i'm going to give a presentation where everyone's going to go you will do michelle we get that but then I have a people go, oh my God, Michelle, I had no idea that there was a XYZ issue. And I go, really? I think, okay, Michelle, echo chamber, you're, you're like you immersed in this all day, every day. Um, what's, so first of all, empathy, explore that folks as a, you know, if you haven't, oh God, I'm going to, don't do the empathy training that was, you know, for our federal, our federal legislators were expected to do. Figure out how empathy can make the game change for your organisation, particularly for your leaders. So that's number one. But what's the second, what's the second thing, practical thing that, that leaders listening, anyone listening in sport can say, what could I do? to move from oblivion to awareness to action. So if oblivion to awareness, how can I get more information? One of the main things that I always say to organisations, one of the programmes we've got proud to play at the minute is um, Rainbow Roadmap, which is helping organisations become rainbow ready. So it basically takes an organisation from doing absolutely nothing to doing LGBT inclusion. And one of the things that you need is data. And that's where kind of the research comes in. Because I'm like, how on earth can you build a strategy and try and develop your business and improve your organizational output when you don't have any data? You need to understand, for example, we're doing work with Anytime Fitness at the minute. They did a survey recently to their members because we want to get an understanding about how many actually LGBT customers do they have? What are their experiences? Um, how are we going to retain them? And I think most organizations and businesses just do not think like that. Um, 
So I think data and actually having evidence and understanding the nature of the problem, like if you know that you've got a prevalence of LGBT people within your sport or organization or following, are they happy customers? Like one thing that stood out to me recently, I want to try and do a project on this, the amount of time people are willing to go to a certain sporting venue or um, event that they know is inclusive. So we have people go to Pride to play events who'll spend up to two hours traveling just to play sport or be physically active in a safe, safe space. And it's becoming very common. And so I guess trying to appeal to a, a larger market, but if you're thinking there's a gym at the end of your street and you're that gym and somebody would not want to come in and would prefer to travel two hours to go to a different gym, you're not doing business right. Like what on earth are you playing at? And again, they're oblivious to it. They don't know. So it's getting that data to understand you've got a problem with this or you have a, a distinct lack of representation um, within your sports. Um, and the data shows as well around gay men in particular in sport in particular, completely absent. Yeah. Oh, well, in, in the game that I kind of pin as my number one, Australian rules football, we, you know, we still have no, at an elite level, we have no openly gay male player. What's just interested, what's, what, what's your personal thought about why that is? Because I get asked this in media interviews all the time. Well, you, you described it when you were talking about the, the young blokes in, uh, in Heartbreaker. I'm going to get ribbed. I'm, I might, I'm going to get hazed. I'm going to get bullied. I'm pro- I may end up being physically assaulted. And that's just what's going on in my own head. So, you know what? Why would I put myself in an environment where I'm in danger emotionally or physically? So why don't I just cut to the chase and just not go there? Or if I find myself there and as I've been playing this sport since I was a young person and I've gone through my um, affirming my, my identity in my teens or some of us a bit later um, and figured out, oh, right, so now I'm identifying as a gay man. I'm in this hyper masculine and and when I say hyper masculine I mean a very narrow definition of masculinity that we typically associate with men's sport in Australia and beyond but I could I my lived experience is only really in Australian sport. Um, in football there's a hyper masculine environment based on a couple of very narrow stereotypes about what it means to be a man. Suddenly shoot I'm gonna lose my mates I may lose the respect of my coach. And, you know, coaches sometimes are held in higher regard by young blokes than their parents. In fact, I would hazard that at a certain stage of their life, definitely held in a higher regard. I don't want to lose respect of these people that are such a big part of my life. So I'm going to hide this part of my identity because it's too risky. So that's, that's my view. And I, and I bring, uh, uh, sorry, Ryan, and I bring that f- from my own lived experience as coming out as a gay woman in a workplace. Um, uh, initially not, not of my own choice. Um, but working through being identified as a, as a heterosexual woman, then becoming, well, not becoming, I always was, but you know, then knowing that I was a gay woman and that fear. Of exposure, of that fear, of that being just unbelievably vulnerable, and that's exactly that's ex- that's exactly what it is. And the research shows that. So basically, these young gay men are not playing sport in the first place. So how are you going to have elite players if they're not even playing at the grassroots? So this idea that oh, there's got to be one in every team. Not there because there might literally be no gay men in that team because they're not playing in the first place. And I think people just don't get that. And I think we really need to drill that forward. So we need to change the environment. There's a big, there's an important scene around that in Heart Supper where one of the, the, the gay men is outside the changing room and hears all this. It's like, why as a gay man would you want to go into that changing room and be in that environment when it's kind of making you feel terrible? So. And then, and then, if I if I if I put that into the in the from a gendered perspective, a perspective into for, for women as a gay woman, as a lesbian, um, here are things that have gone through my mind. Oh my god, uh, 
So we're doing shared rooms when we go away on the team trip. What if they think I'm going to try and, you know, try it on with someone? And of course I wouldn't. I've got a partner. So that's, okay, so that's that's a bit of an issue. What if I'm going to get called, you know, leso or, oh, you're dirty, you know, whatever. And, you know, let's face it, I have just as recently as last week I had a young man shout at me that I was. But anyway, so, you know, and, and this is this is just ongoing, right? Um what if what if I'm a trans woman who would just again look at that change room and go, "Oh, this is just too hard." What if I walk in and someone says, "Get out! You don't belong here." What's the shame I feel and the humiliation that I might feel? So th- this empathy piece is is so important to think. What might it be like for someone who's grappling with where do I fit in and how do I fit in to a heteronormative? system. So a hyper heterosexual environment. And for administrators, it is saying, well, what might we do? I know with women, simple things like change rooms, can we please, you know, we have cubicles for showers rather than the open showers that blokes have. Um, Funnily enough, in, in my own history as an administrator, I, I remember a, a footy coach of men saying, if, if the women are going to get cubicles, we'd like them too because I bloody hate showering in front of other blokes. I hate having to hang my tackle out, you know. Um, how about we have doors on toilets and we, I, I still don't know how men can wee in public, but anyway, I just, you know, I, there's just, there's just this, there are a whole bunch of things when you have empathy for other humans. But I guess to bring that back to what leaders can do and around that good business practices, what don't you know about the community that you're trying to lead and help sustain and flourish in sport? What don't you know? Go and find out. And when people go to find out, start with don't go and ask the people you think might be gay because that's all you, that you know are gay. Go and do your own research. Ron, where do they go? Because I, I really want people who are interested to know where to go to start their awareness, building awareness, and then become advocates. So where do they go? How do they, you know, obviously proud to play, but what should they be looking out for? Yeah, so we've got a, a range of things. So, for example, if you go onto the Pride of Play website, we've got resources. We've got like an inclusion checklist where you can literally lock to get an idea to see whether actually are you or do you have inclusive practices at the minute. Um, we have our Rainbow Roadmap program. And we've got a club one as well. So if you're a club who wants to start doing this work, um, th- there's that. Um, smaller steps before that is again watching some sh- some shows, listening to podcasts. And um, if you go on my LinkedIn, I've shared all my articles, podcasts, all that type of stuff, where you can get um, an insight into um, what it's like and the things, and even reading media and things like that. Like at the minute, I'm not going to lie, it's not great to be an LGBT person. There's just you're constantly reading stuff about our lives, our relationships, and stuff, and it's just like just leave us alone for one minute. And that's me in a very privileged position as a white, gay, cisgender man um, for other people in our community. But again, I think one people don't recognise is we are a community. I've got lots of trans friends and colleagues. So when they're being attacked and stuff, yes, it will impact them, but it also impacts me because they're part of my community and they're also friends and colleagues. So we need to think that just because they're maybe targeting trans women, it's a broader issue around our community because at the end of the day, we are a community and that's one thing that kind of is good about being an LGBT person is that we do have a very broad and supportive community. We saw it from the community response to HIV and AIDS, marriage equality, and now rallying behind our trans community members. Um, I think that's one of the great things about being gay. Mm. Yeah, I would agree. Um, and, you know, that, that rainbow community, as I call it, you know, my community, our community is, yes, we are very good at rallying behind. Um, but we need, we need more advocates and we need more straight allies to start looking at the system that systematically excludes us. Um, so I think that, that the first assumption, don't assume that we're included because we're actually not, we're not overtly included coming, included, I beg your pardon, coming right back to where we started oh yes everyone's welcome here everyone in a very narrow definition of everyone so think about everyone more broadly brings me to the call to action so we we 
the, well, another call to action. So we, we're going to get you people to jump into Power to Play, look at the inclusion checklist, uh, Rainbow Roadmap, get the facts, assemble your facts, data and evidence to say this is what we need to do. Let's bring it down to, um, I guess, an individual level and particularly for those who are saying, I really want to know more and do more for at an organisational or a system level for women, all women, and in this case, lesbian women and trans women. What are the specifics around uh, that we know around lesbian women and, and trans women that um, administrators should also pay attention to, Ryan? Well, I think there's an understanding or a misunderstanding and a general assumption that there's a lot of lesbians in sport, right? There might be a few, but this idea that they're swamped and everyone (laughs) is a lesbian, right? There's not enough lesbians in the world, statistically. If it's about 4% of the population, sport participation is about 60%. So realistically, when you crunch the numbers, there's actually not that many lesbians who play sport because there aren't enough lesbians in the world. So this idea that, oh, sport is inclusive and welcoming to women and lesbians in particular, there's loads of gays who play um, um, AFL, for example. It might be our understanding of that, but that's not the reality, like actually if you count them. (laughs) So I think people need to understand and remember that lesbians do play sport. Many of them do have positive experiences, but many do not. And Moana Hawke has spoken out about it. Um, Megan Shute, Alex Blackwell, all these lesbians in these positions, um, football lesbian mafia. It's it's not hunky dory. It's not nice. So there's a lot of work to do to ensure that lesbian women, coaches, volunteers, managers are um, included and have safe employment opportunities. Because that's the other thing. It's not just this idea of luxury. Every person in a workplace, if you're a manager, a coach, etc., should have a respectful and equitable work environment. And current evidence suggests that's not the case, especially for many women athletes and especially the Matildas who copped a barrage of abuse around that. And football is an interesting one for me without going too much of a tangent, but I just want to kind of put this in there because it is lesbian week of visibility and it was lesbian day visibility yesterday so i have a soft spot for lesbians because when i was at university i went to loughborough university which is a very very big sport university um in the uk and very macho masculine environment wasn't out in particular um until kind of probably my third year and i was befriended by a group of lesbians because the women's football academy was there. So one of my best friends, um, Sophie, used to play um, football. And then she introduced me to some of her friends. And I used to go out gay clubbing with them. And there'd literally be me, the solo gay boy, with an army of lesbians going to pride parades, football tournaments up and down the country. Um, I'd watch England women play and I'd be like, oh, I was out with her on Saturday night. <laughs> and they... They helped me navigate. They looked out for me. They protected me. They literally kind of raised me uh, as a gay man. And I'll always be forever grateful for that because in all the sport environments, it was lesbian women in particular that helped me find my place in sport. So when I see stuff written about them and I see things first gay athlete like Josh Cavallo type stuff, excellent, he's come out, by the way. What about all the women? What about all the lesbian women athletes? (laughs) No. And and you get that a lot, and it's kind of like men athlete. And I just think, unfortunately, um, lesbians in particular have the sexism and the homophobia on top of all the other stuff. So I think it's a neglected area and that there's an assumption that everything's hunky-dory when it's not. And thank you because I feel very seen. Um so, you know, there, there, there are a lot of assumptions. You're right. And there are a lot of, um, yeah, there's a lot of bigotry, uh, towards lesbians, but yet we are dealing with multiple layers. So the intersectionality, intersectionality, those multiple layers, intersecting layers of discrimination. So, you know, the patriarchy is very, very sneaky. Um, and it is also very clever. And so, you know, I have to front up as a woman and a lesbian woman and now as an older woman. So, you know, I've just, 
some days it feels like we're wading through concrete to try and be seen and heard and taken seriously. Um, but the piece I want to pick up on there is that safe workplace. Sport is a workplace, uh, whether you're a volunteer or, or paid. And again, coming back to you know, good business management practices, which I'm so pleased that you brought up. This is another good business management practice. You wouldn't leave, um, you wouldn't leave ropes lying around for people to trip over to create a tripping hazard. You wouldn't leave water on the courts of, of a netball, uh, netball court and allow athletes to play on it. You would, you would not create unsafe physical environments or you would fix it, manage it, mitigate it. Psychological safety and the safety of all women all women and men and others, but particularly in this instance, the psychological safety of women who identify in many, many different ways must be as important as physical safety. So I think that's a great call to action. What about our trans sisters, um, Ryan? What are we, you know, it's, as you said, it's at right as we're recording this, it's just awful and the trauma that that community of people must be experiencing and reliving over and over again uh, is, is awful and I'm, I'm sorry to, to, to all of you. As leaders who want to change systems and help all people, but these, but, but particularly trans women, what could we do? What could we pay attention to? Or what could we do? What's a one tool in our toolkit we could do to be more inclusive and celebrate trans women in our sporting environments? I think the main thing for me that I see is um, you need to call it out. So if people are saying on Twitter or they're saying on a Facebook forum or they're saying it publicly, um, and they're being clearly transphobic by, for example, saying that trans people are predators and they're trying to get into bathrooms and all the other stuff Catherine DeVisa said, that is not free speech, that is not protecting women's sport, that is overt discrimination. And it's not, you do not, it's not rocket science to work that out and think, God, that's not very nice and that's not. Uh, yeah, it's not free speech. So when you hear stuff and you hear trans people being talked about in disparaging and through vilification you have to call it out you can't let it go in terms of oh um, it's free speech it doesn't work like that you have to call it out and you say transphobia is not acceptable you can't say that because otherwise if you don't say anything it produces and increases a culture of disrespect towards trans women so that is the main thing to start with we need to get rid of this language and we need to show that it's not acceptable to open fire against trans people like emily seaborn or seaborn on the project last night talking about trans women do you really need to use your platform right now when you're not competing against any trans women to speak out and call trans women biological males and all that type of stuff. Like, it's, it's not needed. Like, what if, if there was trans women in every final, in every competition and things like that, I can understand why you might raise these issues. But there isn't any. There isn't any. It is absolute madness. And unfortunately, I think sport has got caught in the crossfire and is being used as a platform. Oh, it Undoubtedly, it's been weaponized by people who couldn't have given a shit about it um, three months ago, honestly. But they've got caught up in it and they've got, they're not, I, I'll be honest, I'm very, very disappointed with the sports sector and how, how any of the sports have came out and said anything. Um, they've all got these inclusion policies that I've worked with them on it and they've been absolutely silent. And I am very disappointed and I'll remember this going forwards because again they have this happy talk about we welcome everyone blah 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 when it comes to it and they're being attacked radio silence doesn't work like that i have often said and will continue to say that sport has an extraordinarily important role in the social justice sector we will people will listen to sports organisations and high-profile people more than they'll listen to our legislators. It is a vehicle for social change um, and agreed. I, I, During the marriage equality uh, debacle, I was so pleased that the AFL, and I, I don't really care how they got there, but the AFL came out and said, we support, because I thought, that's my sport, right? I'm an administrator. I'm a board director. I'm a, I participate in this sport. And now my sport has said, you're okay. 
Um, so I agree. I think that that's really important. What's You've talked about calling it out. <clears throat> it's not bad. I've got through the whole thing without a, a cough. Sorry, Sienna, you can cut that bit out. Um, so you've, talk, you've talked about call it out, which for me is – You've got to step up and be an upstander, not a bystander, to bigotry and abuse and vilification. Are there any good resources, particularly around being a, a great ally or, or upstander for a trans for, for our trans community, Ryan? Not yet. We're going to work on them, <laughs> um, which is needed. However, one thing that I will say and that we use these in our educational videos is our watch has some really good resources. So if you type in our watch, um, doing nothing does more harm campaign and there's a series of videos which can be used and you can watch them and it basically shows um examples um and real life scenarios whether it's in a bar at a gym at a sports venue which there are ones around if someone says a misogynistic comment or transphobic comment how do you respond and it's exactly the same way you say something you can walk away or you might say that's not really we can't really say that nowadays but by saying nothing, it does more harm, and I think is exactly the same. That is a terrific resource. Yeah, I agree. It's an absolutely terrific resource, and I'm really pleased. You know, it's such a great organisation. Okay, so you and I know that we can talk for hours, and we can't because people will be losing the will to live uh, listening to this. But anyway, so let's flip. What are you hopeful for? What's the one thing that you're hopeful for? in sport, whether it's the next 12 months or beyond, what, what's giving you hope and you're hopeful for? The main thing I'm hopeful for, I think, is funding. LGBT inclusion in sport is chronically underfunded. Compared to other areas of diverse inclusion and funding streams, it's very difficult to get money to do this work. And in terms of Pride to Play perspective, there's four of us, we work part-time, we are rushed off our feet. Literally, we could do so much more, but we need this work to be funded and we need governments, organisations to understand that there's serious problems with this at the minute, especially around trans inclusion. We need targeted action and work to do that. So I'm hopeful that funding will start to trickle through for this work because there's a, a clear community need. And I'm hopeful that some of the sports that have led the way. So, for example, tennis, I do a lot of work with. They're doing a lot of great work. Um, and other sports who have done stuff in the past, like cricket, have done some kind of good stuff in the space that other sports will now see what can be done and the business benefits for it. Because um, even like just thinking back to a couple of months ago, I was at the SCG for Mardi Gras. The whole stadium was full. And there's these people who say, oh, we can't fill stadiums. No, the gays don't want to come, etc." Like, it's just lies. So there's a market there who are ready. And a lot, a lot of my research shows, they want to be included. Young people, they want to play sport. They want to be part of clubs. But I think at the minute, sport is doing a very good job at switching people off. So I think if they can really turn a corner and engage and share the positive stories, um, because I do wonder why I do this work, to be honest. Like sport has been sport has been my life. I work in it. I've been to the Olympics. I've volunteered at the Olympics. I've travelled. I've had a very good life, courtesy of sport. But at the moment, it's challenging me. I'm not going to lie. So, Ryan, I'll just give you the answer that my wife gives me when I go, why do I do this, she said. Uh, or why did I choose to do this? She said, you didn't choose it. It chose you. Um, so, and, and I'm glad that it chose you because you're, well, as you've said in your own words, you're, you know, the leader of Proud to Play, you're a pracademic, um, you're, you're focusing in on how to create more inclusion in sport for this fabulous rainbow community, uh, that, that we're both members of. But you've given some great advice for our listeners around, you know, business management skills are empathy and understanding your customers, which statistically, we're out there. The, the rainbow community are your customers, your members, your sponsors, um, and to failing to address or take care of and look at uh, that, that the rainbow community in terms of sport is bad business management. You've given some great resources which are going to be in the show notes around what to watch, what to read, where to go, uh, what what resources, and also a bit of a, you know, some checklists. How do I get started? And finally, what I 
absolutely appreciate and love is the fact that you've said we've got to call it out. So when you hear and when you see transphobia, uh, misogyny, uh, sexism, whether it be little or big, please educate yourself on how you can be an upstander and call it out and be a great ally to the rainbow community and in the context of what I'm doing, specifically gay women and trans women in sport because we're there and we want to belong. So Dr. Ryan Storr, thank you for your time and your wisdom and please keep choosing sport because we need you. Thank you. It was great to chat with you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. I hope that you can gain a lot of insights and importantly, take action wherever you may work in sport. Please, if you enjoyed this episode, leave us a rating. It really helps to spread the word. And of course, please do share this episode with your friends, with your colleagues and with your network of people in sport, because together we can close the leadership gender gap.